0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. VTW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the New
0: Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Canadian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Phil Henderson, the host of the channel. And today I'll be talking with Ricardo Tranjan author of The Tenant Class, published in 2023 by Between the Lines Press. Ricardo, welcome to the show. Hello, and
2: thanks for having me here.
1: Uh, I wonder, Ricardo, if you could start off uh, with just telling us a bit about yourself.
2: I am a political economist with the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, the CCPA, a think tank often described as left-leaning, that has been around for some 40 years. Uh, We're independent, we're non-partisan, and um, we rely mostly on the donation of individual donors. That uh, is what allowed us to be so independent and to weigh in on any issue and to have uh, no um, strings attached. We have historically supported the labor movement and other social movements uh, as much as we can by providing research and analysis that they can use to further their causes. Before working for the CCPA, I was with the city of Toronto, the municipal government. I was leading uh, and then managing the poverty reduction strategy that was approved around 2016. And before that, I was hiding a little bit in academia, um, doing my doctoral work uh, I focused most on the economics of, of participatory democracy in Brazil, the country where I was born and raised.
1: Um, and that's, yeah, that's it. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, it might be most helpful to the listeners if you could explain what the titular tenant class is. Uh, Why do you insist on the importance of describing it as a class in particular?
2: The ultimate goal of the book is to repoliticize the housing question. We talk about the so-called housing crisis a lot, like a lot, like basically every day in the news. But we very consistently avoid, and I would argue in some cases evade, the questions of power and politics, which has always been very central to land and housing. So the book takes a political economic perspective, take a slightly more historical perspective, and uses terms and frameworks that are known, largely known, like classes and class struggle, exploitation, appropriation, to politicize housing, to, to say, well, let's, let's have the real conversation here. Uh, let's talk about the class that is being um, exploited, and let's talk about the class that is enormously benefiting from the status quo.
1: That's fantastic. Um, what are some of the common myths about the tenant class that you discuss in the book and uncovered throughout your research? What social function do myths like this serve, uh, and could you correct them for us?
2: Yes, when when you take that political, economic, and, and and historical approach to any question, you inevitably stumble into some cultural aspects, right? And and you can't you can't can't avoid them. You start ended up going there anyways, and 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 a bunch of of theorists and and, and researchers. Ended up doing that and and including folks that that influenced my my training quite a bit, like um, Antonio Gramsci and uh, Paulo Freire and others. So, when I was doing this work, I stumbled into the almost obsession with home ownership in Canada. Um, It's a big thing, like, we we equate home ownership with um making it with with being successful with uh, achieving that middle class status and a priori there is no problem with that except that the next step in that process is to develop some negative views of those who do not make it quote unquote do not achieve or access homeownership meaning tenants so there's a bunch of negative stigma around tenants so the book it was originally actually just a section in a chapter about the tenant class i touched on some of these myths and stigma and my editor read it and she was like no this needs to be a chat you need to unpack this because this is Really important. This goes to the core of the issue. I really enjoy reading. I think others will too. You need to unpack them more, make it into an entire chapter. So I did. So I talk about things like the notion that um, tenants are young um, and they, are, they will grow up one day and buy a house, right? Which the data doesn't support. Um, the majority of primary... Um, maintainers, meaning the person in the household with the highest income in tenant households, are over 40 years old. Um, and so the notion that renting and being in a, in a bad place uh, uh, with, you know, poor maintenance and all of this as kind of like almost a rite of passage that students go through and then they grow up and buy a house and they off they go. That it's a story that applies only to a segment of the population. Um, for many people, for a, a lot of, large share of the population, that is a long term. Housing situation, much like the minimum wage. Again, we have the methods about minimum wage too that is only young kids, you know, bagging groceries that earn the minimum wage. But then you go to the grocery store, you see that they're not actually that young. Um, the second myth that I talk about a little bit is the notion that um, tenants don't pay property taxes. It's obviously and clearly built into the rent, but um, it's rarely articulated as such. Um when we talk about property taxes we're usually talking about homeowners and what they think and what's their political stance and how election results may swing one way or another if if, if um if a mayor or a mayor candidate uh, takes one position or other on the issue so I talk about that a little bit too I talk about the notion that uh, tenants um are not act, as active in the workforce as homeowners. And that's also absolutely not true. The the, the participation rents for individuals who live in tenant households is very similar. Slightly, slightly below, but very similar to individuals who live in homeowner um, households, home-owned households. Um, and then lastly, I talk about this idea that everyone absolutely wants to be a... A homeowner and uh, talk a little bit about the the advantages of being uh, a renter, which are which are kind of underrated and under discussed. But but to take a step back, the purpose of all of this is is twofold. First, uh, especially at the federal level, but also the provincial level, would politicians pay a lot of attention to uh, prospective home buyers. Um, they continually sell the white picket fence stream at the detriment of talking about policies that could improve the situations of not the lowest income segment of the population that needs subsidizing housing or some sort of non-government housing, but what I estimate to be about 70% of the tenant population, which are not in a position to aspire to home ownership at this point neither would they qualify to any subsidies so about 70 percent are between the two and we don't talk a lot about it and the second reason that i try to emphasize um actually that i try to 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 address and 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 dismystify these negative um aspects this negative views about tenants is that um, from a political perspective, from an organizing perspective, it's hard to mobilize and organize a group um, if there is um, negative or a stigma attached to that identity, right? So you have to kind of like remove some of the negative stigma and and, and try and make folks more easily identify with with that group, and hopefully that supports. a, a a process of political consciousness and, and, and political organizing.
1: That's excellent. Thanks, Ricardo. And, and I think also uh, on top of the ideological function that you've just nicely pointed out there, as I was reading the book, it became really clear that one of the political economic functions of the myths that we have about the tenant class, especially because it's coded as so young, uh, as you say, is we don't really need to build in adequate social infrastructure like say a good retirement program for most people because in Canada retirement is expected to be based off of the fact that you've become a homeowner at some point in your life and sell your home and therefore live off of that windfall which is just increasingly not the case uh, especially as homeownership itself becomes further and further out of reach for most people so it has this like uh, class stratifying feature even amongst working people who, between whether they're tenants or landlords in old age as well. Um, which actually brings us nicely to the next question, and that is uh, against the tenant class, you juxtapose what I take to be their antithesis, the land owning class. Uh, and in particular, I think landlords, which might be a fragment or a sort of element within the land owning class. Could you tell the listeners a bit about what we know regarding the social composition of landlording in Canada today? That is, who or what groups uh, are amongst the landowning classes are actually renting residential properties? And what are some of the common myths that we might have about this group? So in March
2: of 2020, when the pandemic hit us for the first time, the CCPA researchers got together and said, what are we going to do? We need we need to jump in. We need to support government in developing the measures and the programs that uh, we're going to need in order to um, just weather this crisis. That We had no idea how long it would be. We just knew that the economy had been partially shut down. Um, and we also had a lot of media requests. Our phone was ringing nonstop because... We were one of the few groups in the country that had long been advocating for um, um, a strong welfare state, for government intervention. Um, a lot of the think tanks that um, argue that government should withdraw, that there is no role for 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 intervention, and um, that tax should be cut, and that. Um, this state should disappear. They were nowhere to be seen when the, the pandemic hit. So our phone was ringing quite a bit. And so I said, OK, I'm going to look at tenant housing and and, 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 and rental housing. I'm going to look at tenants and I'm going to see what we can produce. So in a few days, I, I did an analysis that showed that tenants, uh, most tenant households could not go two or three months without um. Uh, employment income without falling to your ears. They would not have enough money to pay rent. And we could see, you know, a tsunami of of evictions if that was the case. Mind you, this was before the announcement of of the CERB that played an important role in in preventing that. And so I published the piece and then I got a lot of media calls. It was was timely. It had nice and crisp numbers. It was... um, uh, well received, and I start talking to to radio stations and TV stations across the country. And so often, when I said we need some sort of rent forgiveness program, we need immediate. We need to immediately freeze rents, and we're going to need some rent forgiveness programs. Folks will not be able to pay rent. Um, and then, they, so often, the the response that I got was, "But what about the landlords?" <laughs> and that's what it done to me. That in Canada, we equate the financial security of tenants with that of, 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 of landlords as if they were in equal footing. Um, the hosts, great people that I had met and, and, and worked with before, they were genuinely concerned about how landlords and how they would make. So later on, you know, after months and when I started working uh, on the book, I decided to address that, that question, what about the landlords? And essentially, what the chapter argues is that they will be fine because, in fact, there's only about um, forty-five to fifty percent of landlords that would be characterized as, as small business or, or individual investors or mom and pop landlords. The other half, it's pretty large corporations and and uh, what we call now financialized landlords, which means. There are um, financial, uh, usually real estate investment trusts uh, that have apartment buildings as a financial asset and manage them as such. So, so that's the first aspect of addressing that myth: is saying, well, we're only talking of a portion of all landlords, and then of that portion, you have to look into it. And when you do, you say, well, these are these are small businesses. And small businesses um, that have margins of profit that are reasonable or average, as such, they have to incur risks, as such, they have to be used to the notion that there might be at some point revenue losses. Uh, we, we have to talk them as small businesses. Um, and there's another smaller share of that, which are investors people who decided to put a down payment on a second, third, sometimes a fourth property to use them as additional source of income, indecent decent income, and not only income, but wealth accumulation. And again, we have been convinced by public opinion, by our governments, that real estate is really high returns and almost no risk. And to the point now that I would argue some folks who do that, who invest in that way and who become landlords, almost feel entitled to that return. Um, whenever I go and say, well, if you lose money, you lose money. You try to win big at low risk. You lost a little bit, usually operational losses, right? And not actually op- losses in, 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 your, in your capital investment because that more than... than uh, pays for itself, and usually covers your operation loss too. So even if you have a bad um, couple of years, in the long run, it is really hard to lose money on your estate, right? Even if you try hard, it would be difficult to do so. So so I, I address all of this, and, and, and my ultimate argument is, look... At least more than half, slightly more than half of landlords are large corporations and and, and investment trusts. Then the other part, they're small business, they're investors. um, They're families that have a net net, um, wealth that is much higher, much, much higher than average. So let's not equate the financial security of low-income families who are trying to just secure a roof over their heads with the financial security folks that are going for the second, third, or fourth investment property.
1: And I wonder, uh, Ricardo, if I could get you just to expand a little bit about what your thoughts on the impact of CERB, which for American listeners or those outside of Canada was, an emergency income relief program that the federal government implemented during the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic that provided, uh, I'm forgetting the exact numbers right now, but something like 2 dollars per month per household um, in uh, relief money directly. So it functioned as something like uh, universal basic income with some really important caveats attached to that in terms of who was excluded, mostly people who were already outside of the labor market in the year prior to the pandemic. So serious structural impediments. But I wondered if you could just comment based on the class analysis that this book is putting forward about the way in which CERB actually did certainly keep working people and tenant families in particular afloat during the initial crisis of COVID-19, but also had this kind of almost insidious function of stabilizing class relationships through the pandemic. Whereas other solutions like those that you gestured towards, such as not just rent forgiveness, but the abolition of rent say could have altered the composition of class relationships in the country as a whole.
2: Serb served as a de to bail out to the landlord class. There's no question there. And I think at that time given where we had been politically and economically was the right thing to do because we needed a fast response i was happy that the government for once act with a level of resolve that we hadn't seen for decades um but what i'm um, what I regret is the fact that there hasn't been any lessons learning from that, learned from that, right? In fact, what I, I found interesting is that at the, um, the end of the first, beginning of the second year of the pandemic, the Landlord Association in Ontario put forward a proposal um, arguing that the government should um, essentially help to make them whole. So data came out showing that there was only about nine to ten percent of rent in a years in um in Ontario. And compared to the financial and economic disaster that we were seeing in so many other industries, um that was fairly low. And yet landlords proposed that government should pay for a third of their lost, tenants should pay for another third of their loss, and then they were willing to absorb a third, meaning they were willing to only absorb a 3.3 loss in the revenue in the first year of the pandemic. They had the audacity to make that document public and submit it to the Government of Ontario, which begs the question, like, how entitled are they that They think they should always be made whole, no matter what. The house is burning and they're like, where's my profit? I will not, you know, forego a dollar. So I'm afraid that we haven't learned anything from that, that we haven't questioned the very basic political economic question of if there's so much money and opportunity to make easy money with what's called economic rent, how much are we foregoing in, in 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 investment in in wages in economic activity that actually has its pullover effects, right? It's a very classic and very old economic argument that easy money through rent, we will crawl out investment for more productive sectors of the economy. We're not having that conversation yet. And I think that the pandemic showed, you know, that this situation, showed what the situation is and would have allowed us to have that conversation, but we're not there yet.
1: Um, So in the tenant class, you suggest... Uh, And you've already done so in this interview, too, uh, that contrary to much popular discourse, quote, there is no housing crisis in Canada today. Instead, there's just good old landlords squeezing high rents from tenants. Could you first explain why we shouldn't think of the current housing situation with its poor infrastructure, its high rents, low vacancies and increasing houselessness through the lens of crisis? And why you prefer the language of class conflict instead? How do you measure the relative balance of power in this conflict?
2: Yes, I have a huge beef with the housing crisis uh, because I think it depoliticizes, de- politi- essentially depoliticizes the housing question. If you think about a crisis, we think about something that is unexpected or surprising, as a kind of a shock, like like the pandemic, um, whereas. The structure of the rental market and the housing market more broadly hasn't changed for decades and decades in Canada. The situation has been gradually getting worse for tenants, but it's not a surprise and it's definitely not unexpected. We saw it coming. We let it go that direction. And I think we're just seeing how long we can get away with it and and we by we i mean the real estate industry and the political class that supports it just you know how long can we you know keep the music playing and and how long can we keep the bonuses coming and when we can't anymore then maybe we're gonna have to do something about it not much different than 2008 Um, so that's not a crisis in that aspect a crisis also is something that impacts most people negatively, maybe everyone negatively. Again, definitely not the case. You know, there's a lot of folks who are enormously benefiting from the status quo. And then the third piece of it is that um, the language of crisis suggests that everyone is interested in solving this problem. That you can bring the different stakeholders around the table. Everyone are gonna make very serious, pensive faces, and we're gonna, you know, find out a solution that solves the problem because everyone wants this crisis to go away. And that couldn't be farthest from tr- the truth. Uh, there are folks right now actively lobbying for the situation to restate the way it is and actually proposing and trying to push legislation that would make things worse. So not at all, people are not invested in solving this as they would in a crisis situation. So I think that language of housing crisis just depoliticizes the issue, and it's not very helpful.
1: Definitely. And in terms of how we actually conceptualize a balance of power here, you detail in the book that one of the sort of standard ways in which the exploitation of the tenant class is measured is, um, rent as a percentage of income and it's standard that, and as you point out, quite arbitrary that 30% or more of your income per month going to rent is considered, uh, an above, uh, acceptable level of rent. What are some alternatives to this model that you point to in the book? And why are they maybe better ways of thinking about the rate of exploitation that's embedded in the rentier relationship?
2: It's one of the things that I also am constantly mesmerized by the fact that we do not ask the landlord class how much profit's enough? enough. What's, what's your... What's your end game? How when do you st- stop asking for further and further increases, right? With with we have normalized the notion that rents will go up by however much the market will bear, and that that's okay. And and of course we have new classic economics to blame here, right? Supply and demand charts allow you to describe the world without requiring you to provide a moral or any normative justification for why things are the way they are, right? So it's just a description void of any normative arguments. uh, And that actually implicitly has a normative outcome of normalizing what we see as being natural, right? So in other words, we hear Constantly, that the prices of housing or price of rent are going up because there's not enough supply. And then, if you increase supply, prices will stabilize. And we rarely talk about the fact that constrained supply allows landlords to hike up rents by a lot, but that the ultimate decision to do so and the ultimate action in the agency rests with landlords. But we don't question that. We don't question that landlords will push rents as far as they can. Um, so, and I think that's the kind of, of, of power and politics um, dynamics that we have to talk about. Um, I published an op ed not long ago in the Toronto Star where I said, rents don't go up, landlords' rents rates, rents don't go up, landlords raise rents. And they are to blame in large part to the skyrocketing rents that we are seeing in Toronto right now. And I got so much pushback. People were furious by the notion that they were part of the people, and by people I mean landlords. They were furious that someone would dare to point at them as part of the problem and not part of the solution. Um, So um, I think to answer your question more directly, I think from a political and, and from a communications perspective, the real estate industry has an enormous amount of power. They have managed very successfully to frame this issue Landlords and developers are constantly presented as the solution to the problem. They're constantly presented as the ones that need less regulations, more government incentives, more subsidies, and then if you give them to them, they will be able to get us out of this crisis. They're never presented as the problem, as the ones that are pocketing too much money, as the ones who greedy is making house um insecurity a different type of pandemic in this country so they they did well in terms of framing this conversation
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: And I think also, as you point out in the book, and as others like Francesca Manning have pointed out in some recent uh, research as well, is that um, one of the things that neoclassical economics, as you said, invites us to is this amoral uh, assessment of things. But it also invites us into a really bad set of descriptive elements in that land or rental space is not like other commodities in the sense that a it's finite um there's only so much land upon which you can build no matter how high you want to go uh in the country or in the world and b it's um non-disposable really in the same way that like to use i think i forget if it's in tenant class or if it's in manning's work but uh, a landlord is not the same thing as like a banana salesperson in that uh it's, it is in tenant class. Yeah. A banana salesperson has a stake in moving product off the shelves. Whereas as you point out in your book, um, and it, as you alluded to before, a landlord can sit on the property and because of our uh, expectation that property valuation continues to go up and up and up, still make money. And so it has no actual incentive to push the the renting side of things in the same way in which other commodities have to get off the shelves.
2: Yes, and another person who has been doing really good work on this is Josh Ryan Collins in the UK. And his work reminds us that all the classic economists, the political economists of back then, they understood this very clearly. Uh, they understood that land, as you described, it's finite, it's perpetual, it's, it's, it's non-transportable, um, um, it's fixed in, in place, and it has all these kinds of attributes that make it very weird and, and different and, and extremely valuable, And it's at the center of, of political um, contention. Uh, and, and all of them had a sort of special treatment to, to how we're going to deal with that question, and even the liberals among them um, worried about people hoarding land and, and being able to um, generate too much economic rent and the negative impact that would have in economic growth and, and economic activity, and they wanted to tax it heavily. And, of course, the socialists and the anarchists have also... Um, problems with it, but they had a different sets of, of solutions for it. And we sort of forgot all of this when you know new class economics became so predominant and we removed all the power in politics and we start treating land as if it was just another capital asset and as if the supply and demand um, models would would apply to it equally well as it does to to other um products um and other goods and services so yeah it's 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 there where you see the very clear role that new class how new classic economics can be used in a political way in in order to to very deliberately depoliticize a particular issue Mm
1: -hmm. um and i think you've already started to uh, allude to the answer here. So I might reframe my question from our notes a little bit, uh, which is that you suggest that it's important to shift our framing from what you call technical solutions, uh, which you were sort of outlining before, uh, to a political approach to the housing question. And I want you to discuss what the substantive distinction between these technical solutions is and the political approach that you advocate for? What's the consequence? And also, does this tie into your critique of expertise that you lay out throughout the book? Uh, In particular, the types of people who typically get uh, allowed to call themselves housing experts. Um, Why is that a problem?
2: I think Canada, an enormous emphasis on a particular type of civil society. We have what in sometimes in some democratic theory was described as like the third sector, meaning it's, it's a civil society that is comprised mostly of professionals who engage in these questions of policy and, 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 and social services and social programs in their professional capacity from nine to five. And um Why that is an important aspect of a sort of overall healthy democratic system, I see in Canada, in comparison to other places I studied, lived um, in other places that um, both contemporary, but also in the past, um, that civil society, that third sector takes a lot of space. and engages very directly with government all the time, and often is the sole interlocutor of non-governmental points of views and and perspectives. And we're speaking mostly of folks exactly like myself, you know, research and policy analysts um, who are paid to do this. And there's a lot of less emphasis or a lot of less space for social movements, which in some, again, some, sometimes we, we distinguish between that civil society called third sector and social movements, which are more grassroots, which are folks that do not have any allegiance to a particular organization, that do not operate with any institutional constraints. They're really driven by a cause and a political agenda. And they engage with government uh, and with political parties or with directly with capital, in a more confrontational perspective, because it is their interest and their needs against the interest of others. So, so it's 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 kind of intrinsically more politically, um, because it is about defending our livelihood versus um, ensuring profit to the landlords in this particular case. Whereas with the civil society approach, what I see too often is this notion that we can't arrive at a win-win uh, win-win solution. We can find a policy solution that will work for everybody. And then I see often, I find myself, not only see, I find myself in, in, in places where around the table we have um, corporate landlords, we have invest- investors, investors, um, the banking industry, and a neighborhood organization, and some tenant movement, and then a bunch of policy folks, researchers like myself, with various allegiances and and, and institutional constraints, and we're all talking as if there was no conflict, as if, again, we're all interested in coming around the table and finding a solution for us. And I think that is just in. In practical terms, that serves just as a delaying tactic for the government to look busy without changing anything, to look busy without addressing the huge elephant in the room, which is the power dynamics, which is the fact that the landlords and the, 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 developers and the banking industry representatives around the table, they are there essentially to stall progress, to keep things the way they are. And it's just everyone else wants to change the status quo, but that is never said explicit in those meetings. This is kind of like a pretend game. So I find that um, experts and researchers and Other folks who who participate in policy development and program development have an extremely important role to play in certain parts of the process. I would argue later in the policy development process, once governments have actually decided to act, actually decided to invest, and they are now trying to figure out the how, how to make sure that the policy, the program, the measure will be adequately uh, designed. Will be targeted so as to actually reach the person and the, the population groups that are aimed at. Um, that at that point, I think that experts can play a very important role. But we're not there with housing. We're so not there. Like we are at a much earlier stage, where. Governments need to be pushed into action, needs to be pressured to step away from representing so deliberately and so consistently the interests of, of the, the, the real estate industry and, and the landlord class. And that, you know, that political pressure won't come from the experts. That that will come from, from social movements, that will come from, from political organizing.
1: With that like, sense of sort of where the landscape is at right now in terms of how heavily tilted it is towards the interest of a landowning class, what are some of the models of tenant organizing that you uh, explain and then differentiate uh, within the book between, say, neighborhood and regional approaches to tenant organizing, as well as what you describe as territorial organizing? Uh, and then following on from that, Uh, after you've laid out the different types of organizing, what are the various tactics uh, that are deployed by tenant organizing?
2: Yes, the book starts that part of the work with a historical chapter. And then the first um, goal there is to call attention to the fact that tenant organizing is not new. It dates back from before Confederation. Um, And it has been seen everywhere in the country, from east to west, to large cities, to small towns. Um, it's been um, a constant, actually, in, in Canadian history, That, but one that we pay a lot less attention that makes to our history books a lot less often. And, and the role of that chapter is, is is bringing a little bit of that um, out and in, in hopes that that supports um, current organizers in, in, in understanding and knowing that there is a history, that, that what they're doing today is part of a, of a historical fight. Um, in terms of the different models that exist today and that have also existed in the past, um, some tenant groups choose to work within a very clearly delineated territory and just build. Working class power in that space, and um, their focus is to have enough strength to essentially fight anything that comes their way. Um, so they're less interested in, in, in forming political coalitions or participating in policy debates or or any of that. Um, you no, know, capitalists and governments will do what they will do, and they will um, often. Um, just try to maneuver uh, the so-called left or they will try to maneuver uh, political movements to suit their own goals. Um, so they prefer to stay out of all of that and very focus on local power. And, and, and an, just,
1: example of that, sorry, an example of that that you lay out in the book is Parkdale Organized, yes. right? Where Where they're organizing both tenants who live in Parkdale and workers who come to Parkdale to work, right? So it's a like double move of worker and tenant organizing, right?
2: Yeah, and workers in Park Deo too. Um, And again, their idea is to be ready for whatever comes. It needs to be, um, they have this clear sense that no one else is coming to help us. We have to help ourselves, period. There are other organizations that are more willing to form coalitions. Um, Or sorry, I think the right term would be they're more interested and more hopeful with um, forming organizations, uh, broader coalitions, um, and they see that the the, the local level work against, uh, mostly against landlords on the day to day fights, should be supplemented by some political work that aims at policies that could change alter the the the, the dynamics of power locally. So, to give a practical example, um, whereas tenants are often fighting um, what we call in Canada the, the, the above guideline rent increases, which is sort of like a loophole that allows landlords to increase rents by more than the the, 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 um, the rent guideline in- for that year. They're fighting that all the time with like rent strikes and other um, collective actions, but they would like to see legislation that it eventually um, abolish above guideline increases as an option altogether. And so they will organize with um, political parties, with counselors, and they will try to push legislation too. One one good example also, um, it's in Quebec. Quebec has a, has a strong history of, of tenant um, militantism. And in the 1970s, uh, late 1970s, there was already a lot of tenants organized locally. Um, a comité logement this is the term for in Quebec and at some point they got um, they got tired of playing defense all the time and they said no we need we need to form coalitions and we need to to start interacting at other levels um, and they formed two organizations um, that do play that role and they have slightly different models one organization you know has a has a kind of um, paid staff and it's organized in a way that is democratically organized internally, but it has a structure and engages with policy, provincial and federal levels. The other organization, it's more a regroupment, like so it's just a coalition that brings together all the local tenant unions at, to sometimes uh, pick a fight or to, to, to you know, Organ do like collective action against one particular measure, uh, which is the case right now actually in Quebec. Um, so so there are various models and 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 I'm very explicit in, in my writing and in, in my engagement with this topic that I'm a researcher and I'm not an organizer, so I I'll never be prescriptive about what's the right or the wrong model. It's for tenant organizers themselves to decide. Uh, based on their own realities and their discussions and their strategic uh, strategizing, what is the best model for them. But um, there are plenty. There are plenty of models and there's plenty of activism going on right now.
1: That's great. Um, This is sort of me reflecting as you're speaking. And uh, if we accept that there's a type of analogy between tenant organizing and worker organizing, which... As you pointed to, several tenant organizations work under that assumption. One of the, I think, correct accusations that's been leveled against labor organizations in the history of Canada as a white settler colony is that they have often made advances for workers, in particular white male workers, on the back of excluding either indigenous people or racialized people uh, who are coming to Canada. And largely excluding women uh, as a whole as well. Are there similar issues in the history of tenant organizing, but also conversely, just to speculate, what do you think an anti-colonial tenant movement in Canada could look like in an age in which land back is such a prominent demand amongst indigenous communities?
2: That is a huge and hugely hugely important question. Because when we talk about housing and rental housing, we're obviously talking about housing that is built on land. So the next question is, whose land are we demanding access to this house? What does it mean in terms of what claims we're making about our right to be in particular land? And my, I haven't looked in depth on the my historic examples to see what um, what they were like in terms of of inclusion and, and, and in terms of awareness of other um, aspects of of diversity within their own movements. my sense with the current organizations that I studied and folks that I talked to and interviewed for the book is that, they are really conscious of the need to have a very diverse um, membership and to be very inclusive of um, the different population groups that represent Canada right now. That comes almost naturally, to be true, to be honest, um, because the tenant population um, in itself, it's very diverse and includes uh, large shares of 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 marginalized groups so we would be kind of tone deaf completely or or almost impossible not to to make sure that everyone is involved um and i think there's a cup organizations that have been also struggling with the question of, of land back and what that means for their organizing um, in the book i mentioned um, the Vancouver um, Tenants Union. Um, they, uh, I think, in part because the nature of where they are and the history of that particular territory, they're very conscious of it. Um, not that they have a definitive answer to the question, neither do I. Um, but it's something that the movement is thinking, parts or segments of the movement is thinking, right? What, what does it mean to be inclusive? What does it mean to be claiming? Uh, access or right to housing in this particular time and place, and and in a land that has the the sort of the history of of murder and genocide that we still live with, and and we live with the consequences and, and the continue um, perpetration of, of of those crimes. So, um, I think my 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 final word of that that I'm I'm hopeful that. We can learn from the labor movement and skip that stage and in the tenant movement
1: right i think that that's uh definitely what we need to be aiming at um my last primary question for you uh is admittedly quite an academic one, but I'm going to proceed anyway. Uh, So the tenant class takes, as you've accounted for, a modified Marxian account of class conflict as its primary theoretical lens. Uh, And while your focus is on the tenant class itself, its antagonists in landlords lurk around every corner. Basically, Uh, I take it from your discussion that you understand landlords to be part of the broader capitalist class. But this is a position which isn't without controversy within Marxian thought itself. Uh, So what to your mind is the analytical or political upshot of seeing landlords and the capitalist class as an integrated whole? Does this integrative analysis extend to the whole of the land-owning class, i.e. those who own land but are not landlords? Uh, And if so, may analytical integration of this sort obscure other important dynamics, such as, as we've been talking about, settler colonialism, that could be uh, helpful in spotlighting how we see the landowning class as a third class that articulates portions of both the capitalist and working classes towards one another?
2: So the regional. Draft of the book had a had a much longer discussion of the concept of class and how I was using it, and eventually we, we decided to drop it uh, because we want to ensure a an accessible, fast paced kind of reading, uh, but also because there are questions there that I think I, I need more time to to think about and, and to talk and then to to discuss. So I appreciate that that opportunity to do so. Um, I think there there, there two ways in which I would explain or perhaps even justify the use of class. First, I think there is a tradition within Marxism, broadly defined, not specifically uh, scholarly endeavors, but Marxism more broadly defined, um, where folks use the term class loosely when that can be helpful, um, where that can support emancipatory projects. Um, here we think about the ultimate goal of Marxism is practice. And you're going to use those concepts and, 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 and that frame of analysis however you can to put more wind behind your movement. Uh, the ultimate goal is to push for the emancipation of, of subaltern classes. And, and I think that here has also become obvious that my Latin American background, because I think in, in the South, there's a more of tradition of doing that because Marxist concepts and, and, and analysis didn't always quite fit. Um, the realities on the ground. So you you had to kind of like push and stretch and adapt it. and the concepts as you went a little bit to sort of fit what you're seeing in the world fit the people you're trying to 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 to, 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 to put a fight against and, 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 and all sorts of things. So in that sense, I hope the Marxist gods will forgive me. using class that loosely because the ultimate goal here is to um support the fight against the landlord class um and in as far as the term term class helps that uh fight it justifies itself in that perspective the other perspective which would be more academic i think that you know when 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 Eagles wrote the very extensive um, essay where he essentially argues that, no, um, the landlords are not the capitalist class. They're two different things. And the fundamental distinction is at the point of production. Um, it cannot be at the point of production uh, consumption so landlords and, and 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 the capitalist tenants and 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 labor they're not equivalents and they should be treated differently well quite a bit has changed since then um, and to go back to even our just kind of previous conversation one of the things that we're more willing to accept is is the whole, whole role of the care economy, the role of um, the reproduction, reproductive work and not only productive work, right? So so the so then you start you no know, thinking about okay, so you know if, if reproductive work is as important as production, um, what does it mean for how you treat housing? Which is that ultimately basis for, for, for reproduction and care and that whole aspect of, of human activity that does not take place in a factory, but that we now recognize as important. So that is one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is the financialization of housing and the grid to itch. Right now, housing and and. and, and it's so embedded in the flows of capital right as like in and supports it in so many different ways um as a place to park capital most importantly which again goes back to some of the our earlier comments about the supply and demand and how is a quite simplistic understanding of housing because it plays that very important role in, in capital in the flow of capital of just storing wealth for a little bit, just park money here and there and all over the world. And how now the role uh that the real estate industry is playing in just leveraging debt and leveraging money that goes into all sorts of other economic sectors. And so so that whole integration of of, of capital and, and real estate um And of course, I'm I'm bastardizing some of the explanations that David Harvey kind of provides us in in understanding that. Also, I think could be an argument for for rethinking um, whether the the tenant class and those who are excluded from um, um, owning property are in a similar or more analogous position than those who are you know, have no choice but to sell um their labor. Uh so I think I think it's worth I think it's worth revisiting whether or not um their relationship it's a li- has become a little bit more similar than, than we thought it was in the past. And and the final thing I would say is is it, it the, the question that you pose is really interesting. the land owning class, right? And where do they fall in all of this? And in and, and the book I stay away a little bit from that. Because I was, I, I thought I had packed enough in in that very short book already to to address that question of essentially home ownership and where does that crowd falls um, as folks who are not perpetrators of the kind of predatory um, practices that we see uh, from from main landlords and they are like, trying to you know maximize profit margins and investments and so on. They're also not. At the other end of it, just having their 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 a share of their of of their income appropriated monthly f- from the landlord class, they are in a position where they're benefiting from from this situation. Um, they are like a petit bourgeois of sort, um, but yeah, it's worth it's worth revisiting what what their, their role is in all of this and. Uh, what uh, we could or should expect of them.
1: Yeah, I think um, as I look at uh, the most recent municipal election here in Toronto or, you know, every election cycle that comes through the mapping of even on the partisan landscape in Canada, as narrow as it is, the mapping of left versus right partisan returns onto a map of the suburbs where there's a higher incident rate of ownership versus a map of a downtown core you can quite easily see how home ownership actually shapes partisan directions uh and there's a whole implied political ethos that goes behind that as well
2: it does especially when folks start expecting their houses to provide more than than a home their houses to provide large financial gains It, it 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 changes, it changes their, their political perspectives, I think.
1: So finally, it's traditional at the New Books Network to close by asking guests what they're working on now. Uh, Ricardo, if you have ongoing research or community projects that you'd like to highlight, please feel free to do so now.
2: I would like to call attention to two rent strikes that are presently um, Happening in Toronto. One is in the neighborhood of Weston. It has been organized by York Southwest and Tenant Union. It is an apartment building on 33 King Street, not the famous King Street downtown, another King Street um, in the inner suburbs. It um, is a building that has received uh, an series of above-guideline rent increases in the past years, and tenants just kind of had enough, and they went on a strike on June 1st, and they are receiving all sorts of threats and, and menacing correspondence from the landlord, but they are refusing to back down, and they're actually just growing in strength. So if anyone wants to learn more about them, it's easy to Google York Southwestern uh, Tenant Union, and they will have an opportunity to learn more, including ways of, of supporting if folks are, are so inclined. There's a second rent strike going on in Torncliffe Park Drive. There are three um, large apartment buildings that together have about 600-ish um, units, mostly low and moderate income families. And the landlord in that case is Starlight, a large, large corporate landlord that actually is managing those buildings as financial assets for PSP investments. PSP investments is the pension fund of federal public employees. So we are in this wicked serious situation right now where the pension fund of federal public employees is about to start evicting tenants who are low and moderate income and went on a strike because they did not um, agree with a 10% rate increase over two years. They said that's too much, we have just gone through three years of a pandemic, food prices are um, going up fast, we're having a hard time making ends meet. Can we talk? Can we negotiate? Can we, you know, try and find a solution? In Canada, landlords um, do not have the the obligation to negotiate. Tenants do not have collective uh, bargaining rights. So in this case, the landlords simply said no, no, and no. they said no many times to negotiating with tenants, and then now starting to send eviction notices to those tenants. So it's a really, again, it's a really wicked and, and, and regretful situation that the pension fund of federal public employees is going ahead to evict low-income tenant families. So folks who want to to, to learn more, uh, they can go to also try to, to browse the internet and look for um, um, Torncliffe Park tenants uh, there's including um, one thing that you will likely bump into is a GoFund page. And the rationale there is that once um, the eviction notes hit tenant uh, families, they will have to pay a fee to be able to contest the, the eviction. And that fee, in their case, can, can amount to a one or two weeks of equivalent of groceries. So um, the GoFund, it's going largely to, to support them in paying those fees so that they do not have to sacrifice um, their family well-being uh, because of this. So I would just um, invite folks to learn more about the two rent strikes in New York Southwestern and in Torncliffe Park Drive by looking up these two tenant unions and see if there's any ways they can support them.
1: Thanks, Ricardo. And we'll actually happily provide links to both of those organizations in the show notes for this episode uh, so listeners can find it on their podcast app of choice um ricardo Tranjan, author of the tenant class out now from between the line books thank you so much for joining us
2: thank you for having me it has been really great